Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting, and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes, and you can join us inside the community where there's 130-plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast. Through law and through this human right world, I can access this world that I've only read in the newspapers or I watch it on the TV. You know, in, in, in 96, Rwanda, we're talking about Rwanda, is talking about like people were coming straight from the most dangerous place in the world. So, and they were talking as, no, yeah, we're there and this and that. And they were talking, making jokes, laughing. And I was like, wow. I mean, I mean, there is suddenly it was as if I could make a dream come true. It's like, how can nobody ever explain to me this? Hey, everybody. This is the Career Guide Podcast, brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Joining us today is Marcos Lorenzana, who is currently a human rights officer with the United Nations. Marcos has worked for nearly 15 years with the United Nations in various countries and positions and has also worked with the OSC in the past as well. When I look at the LinkedIn profile of Marcos, I see someone who's very well traveled and has done a very good job in terms of not only establishing an international career, but managing it as well. And so, Marcus, thank you very much for joining us today and agreeing to share your own experiences and journey to an international career. I'm very interested in your story and hearing about how you got started. Well, thank you very much for having me. How did you get started with an international career? What made you want to start working for organizations like the United Nations? Well, you know, it's, uh, I think uh, these type of things don't happen suddenly, and uh, at least back in the day. Things were not as clear as they are today. That there are, you can really at the early stages of your studies, you can sort of craft your career or your studies to end up in an international career. Back in the days when I was in the university, uh, it was not clear at all. So I had to do it as I saw fit. In essence, you know, I was studying law in Spain. Uh, as many, many people in Spain and France and Italy back in those days, law was the, the kind of studies that most people choose when they didn't have anything clear. Uh, and the reason why is because it seemed that law could fit in any place, in the local, in the administration and so on and so forth. So I was studying law I and then Suddenly, this was back in the day, 96, I think. That's when the these Erasmus exchange programs came to Spain. It was not the beginning, but it was 
kind of the beginning. No, nobody really knew what it was. Very few people went. So I applied for this and I was encouraged. So I, I, I saw as a good opportunity to sort of expand my studies and see whether other options were available. And it was by chance that I got selected to go to Sweden. And that was really lucky because in Sweden they have, they had, I'm sure they have today still a very advanced program on international law, international public law, maritime law, European community law. So instead of doing the regular national law, I, I took this option. Not because I wanted to, but because I saw as a, okay, it's a good thing to do. The, the classes and the courses they have here, they seem to be quite well advanced. The system they have in Sweden is, it was way advanced than what we had in Spain, much, much more sophisticated classes with less students, etc. Anyway, it got me more interested into this topic and so on. And then, and this is the moment where everything changed in my life, which was the fact that uh, the OSCE in that year, um, you probably kind maybe and you probably remember, in that year in 1996 is when when they signed in Yugoslavia, back well it was, it was called Yugoslavia, the, the first Dayton Peace Agreement. Right. And in the yeah, and in the Dayton Peace Agreement, one of the prerequisites to go to stop the violence or to stop the hostilities, it was that they declared. Britsko, uh, under like Milosevic accepted that Britsko declared Britsko for uh, like inter, uh, put it under international mediation, and then they would choose whether they wanted to be part of Bosnia or the Republika Srpska. Mm -hmm. In light of that, uh, the Americans they accepted that agreement and they gave that to the UN and 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 to the UN and to the OSCE. So the OSCE, they found out that they didn't have enough lawyers with international experience who could go into all those details, register the population, and organize a vote. So the OSCE at the time, they, they said, okay, let's reach out to the universities that they have experts in international law, so-called experts. So we're talking 1996, you know, not many universities especially like in Southern Europe, etc. they were connected to the internet at the time. There was not like this network of international students, international law, post-degree students and so forth. So anyway, it ended up in the University of Stockholm where I was, and I joined up. I, I joined up not knowing, not having no idea what I was going to. At the time, you know, it was, 19, as I said, 1996, going to Yugoslavia, it was going, it was going straight to war. Mm. It was an adjudication process. I had no idea what it was going. But anyway, it was many years ago. I was a student. I said, okay, this is an a golden opportunity. Let's go. And that's what I opened my UN my international experience career. So when I went there, that's when I saw people that they were coming from the UN, people that they were coming from international institutions. And, and that's the first time I, I saw that the international studies could have a career in an international organization. And I will tell you why. I will tell you why, because coming from law, you do not have an idea that there are international organizations that hire people, that take people overseas, that they are in conflict, that they manage different type of... You, I had no idea. 
All I knew from the UN or from the OSC is what I saw on the TV. Nothing else. I didn't, I, I never thought that someone like me, a, a, a random law student from Spain, could access these type of jobs that they existed, etc. So I spent there like in, in Bretschko for, a, I was there for like a period of three, four, five months. Not much because I had to go back to finish my studies, uh, which I did. And then also that kind of planted the seeds on, okay, there is a world internationally, OSCE, EU, United Nations that I could, you know, that there is an, there is an option. Because at the time, honestly, I was very lost. I had no clear. But when I went to Bosnia, I really liked it. I thought it was an interesting experience. I enjoyed being overseas. I enjoyed being in a post-conflict country. I, that really opened my eyes. And from that moment on, I kind of knew what, what I would have liked with the limited experience that, that that meant. But at least I knew that I could do something on an international organization, something that I could craft with time, going to places that I like and so forth. Anyway, so I went. I, I concluded my studies, and when I concluded my studies, it's when the Kosovo crisis started. Uh, right, right after it was 1999. It was the, the at the time the had kicked out the OSC observers from the OSC, from the OSC in Kosovo, and then they went. Then there were the the bombardments at the Clinton time. So then, and then refugees, blah 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 blah. blah. And that's when I, at that time, I finished my studies. So it took me a little while. I initially got a job in an NGO dealing with refugees from Kosovo in Macedonia. And that allowed me to be on the ground. And I said, okay, uh, okay, this humanitarian job is interesting and it could be, it could be useful. I met many interesting people, dedicated, engaged. But I said, but I thought, you know, the, the OSC, the, the, uh, the international institution could be my place to be. So I applied for a job in Kosovo. After a few months in, in Macedonia, I applied for a job in Kosovo, and they gave me a job in Kosovo with the OSCE in a similar job what I had done before in, the, in 1996 in Bosnia. And that's, that's, when I, that's when really I started my international organization career life in 1999-2000. So... When you had this, like, I mean, that's pretty unusual to hear about OSCE, like going to universities in a, in, in a time like that. And it's also interesting for me because I ended up going to Bosnia in 1999. And then also in December 99, I was in Kosovo with the conflict and stuff. So the interesting thing is that, you know, how was it when they just come and presented this opportunity and they just come to you? You're like a student in, in university. You're studying law. And they're just like, hey, you want to go, you know, to Bosnia and, and organize elections or something? It, like, how was that? How did that happen? No, it was really very curious because in, in the University of Stockholm, they had this Europe, European Law Students Association, which I never had, uh, have never, you know, I would like to put yourself in 1996. I mean, I had no idea what the OSC was. And my idea of the UN was really, really something I had no clue. 
if you go to, if you could have gone probably to the University of Political Science or International Relations, people were well aware of what the OSCE, the UN, etc. were. But studying law is something. Even if if you start, I was studying mostly international public law, which doesn't really re, doesn't give the UN like a face, like an enterprise that hires people. So the OSCE, I'm sure because I'm sure because they they needed like maybe. 200 or 100 people to determine whether people could be registered in one place and people who had to go through international legislation and the peace agreement, etc. I thought that's what they said. Okay, let's reach out. We don't, we don't have people, basically, who are available to do this type of job. So let's reach out to law students' associations in universities that they were starting to be connected to networks of employment in international organizations, international careers, and so forth. And suddenly these facts came to the European Law Students Association, which I was not even, uh, not even part of. But there was one of my, the ones who live in my apartment and said, listen, this thing has reached to us. I said, are you, you're studying law, right? So I said, yeah. He said, you have to write to them. Uh, just to let you know, I know this maybe for you is not so, it's not, it's, it may be surprising, but when I sent an email to the OSC, is the first, I had to open an account on an email. I hadn't had email until that day. In 1996, in 1996 coming from Spain, etc., email was not really developed, at least in my world. When I saw that, that thing that I had to apply, I had to go with a friend. I said, please tell me how to open an email account. So on an email account, then write up my resume. I didn't have no, I didn't have resume at the time, even though my resume at the time was my name, driving license, yes, and experience zero because I had I hadn't worked until that day. And basically at that time, I, I'm sure the OSC in those days they were getting anybody who was applying. It was not a matter of like who do we get. It's like this guy yes, has showed up, we take him because they, they were really much less people than what they needed. They were only talking about like they because they had to, according to the agreement, the agreement, the, the Dayton agreement. I don't know if you were involved. It became so messy and so confusing, but it was basically okay. This guy has lived has been has lived here since 1992. Then he can apply and register to vote if he was if he came here in '96. No, if his his mother is Bosnian, yes, it was so complicated. So it was basically anybody could have done that. But I, I, I'm sure the OSC wanted to to give. And at that at that time, I remember because that's one of the things that shocked me. In 1996, I think that's when the High Commission for Human Rights they had a mission in Rwanda, and because there were some problems with the government, the government of Rwanda, the same that is today, expelled the mission from Rwanda. So those Rwanda people are the ones who were integrated into the OSC mission in Bosnia. That's when I realized there is a career that can you can join. And these people, they're coming from Rwanda. They also studied law. They are human rights officers. Suddenly, for, for me, it was like an eye-opener seeing these people coming from different... Especially they were coming from Rwanda and Cambodia at the time. And I was thinking, where is, so where are you guys coming? No, no, we are coming from Rwanda. We are human rights observers and blah, blah, blah. So, and you work for who know the United Nations, and there is this UN program and the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and we are in Bosnia, in Rwanda. 
And I said, wow, I mean, this is, and these people, they were like, at the time I was young, they were older than me. I said, wow, and you've been there? No, we've been working for a couple of years and this and that. That's when I realized, wow, I mean, there is there's a whole world open, opening here for me. So what was that like for you when, when you met these people? And I mean, it was very much the same for me. Like you have to go, you have to leave your country, so to speak. It sounds drastic, but basically you, you leave, you go overseas and then you just meet people and, and you start to just figure out how things work. Uh, and, you know, because it's, there's nothing really out there that sort of tells you how international careers work. And so what was this like for you? And especially back then in those days, because it was the same situation for me, I had exactly the same issues. It was like, you have to go through what I call this process of discovery. And it, yeah. it wasn't until you landed in Bosnia and then you get to Kosovo and then you just ac- accidentally meet somebody who's like, oh no, we've just come from Africa. You know, kind of is so random to meet people um, and just to, just to be able to explain what international careers are like. So, so what was that like for you when you talk to them and you just sort of discover that, you know, let's say this light bulb moment when, when you just realize that everything can, can be possible for an international career? Yeah, to, 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 to the first experience for me was like mind-blowing because uh, the Rwanda, Rwanda genocide, the war in Congo, I mean, now we see Rwanda and it's like, wow, it's the past. And also I've been in Rwanda, da, 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 and I've seen, but back in those days, trust me, when I saw people coming from Rwanda, I saw like, they were, these guys, wow, these are really, this is, these are real heroes. I mean, they've been in the war zone, they're coming to tell their experiences, they, they talk about this mind-blowing experiences, living in places so extreme, etc. So it was like, wow, I mean, how can this happen? At that time, I thought it was only like the militaries and the world reporters who were having this kind of experience. And so suddenly, it was like a, a thing like, oh, so I can, through this, through law and through this human right world, I can access this world that I've only read in the newspapers or I watch it on the TV. You know, in, in, in 96, Rwanda, we're talking about Rwanda, is talking about like people were coming straight from the most dangerous place in the world. So, and they were talking as, no, yeah, we're there and this and that. And they were talking, making jokes, laughing. And I was like, wow. I mean, I mean, there is suddenly it was as if I could make a dream come true. It's like, how can nobody ever explain to me this? And that there is, I can do something interesting or something adventurous with this type of career, that this type of studies that I'm doing. Because all I, I, I was convinced that I was going to end up in some administrative job lost in the administration in Spain. I never, for me, this was like, oh, there is a possibility out there that I, I could really be happy. I could really be, you know, having adventures, going to different places, doing all kinds of things. Then I was perhaps the youngest in the group because at that time, you know, we had we had to do, go through a course in Sarajevo that lasted maybe two, three weeks to tell us about the different prerequisites of the date of peace agreement, the regulations, the rules, the da, da, da. So I had to, I always followed someone who had been in similar scenarios before. Not, Nobody really told me, oh, this is what you have to do. This is what you do not have to do. You know, you. I was there. I saw people that they seemed 
confident, they knew about law, they knew about international relations, they knew about these type of things. So I, get, I, I kind of like glued myself to them and just um, do what they were doing. Then you realize that it's relatively easy. And also that it's very rare that they will send someone with zero experience just by himself. You will always have someone or no, you can always ask someone. And in these kind of scenarios, at least back in the day, the people were very very helpful to each other. So when they saw someone completely new, I think human nature, there is a tendency to help those who just came new and explain them the basics and so forth. So that's how I learned. But no, I didn't have any guidance. I had no idea. Yeah, absolutely. And and coming back to that sort of Kosovo moment for you, you say you started with an NGO and you were working on the ground in Kosovo. Uh, how did that help you in terms of moving to your next position? Because you said then you applied, I guess it was, was it for UNMEC? In Kosovo, then that you got your next position? No, 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 no. In Kosovo, I was in the OSC. And the reason I, I went to the OSC okay. is because I moved temporarily because I didn't know what to do with my life, etc. So, and I, it was not as easy to contact somebody in the OSC at the time with no contact email. I, nobody taught me, listen, the, keep in contact with the chief. Maybe you can ask him to, to apply for a job later. And I had no idea about, I didn't, you know, the funny thing is that this, these things as, Common sense as they seem, they are not as easy when you start in the sense that, okay, I have to leave for whatever reason because I have to finish my studies. I never thought of like approaching the chief of the OSCE in my region. I said, hey, mister, you know, I'm leaving because I have to conclude my studies, but I would like to be in touch with you just in case in a couple of months or in a year I could be available again. I never thought of that. I just left, like packed my bag and I left. So then when I was ready to work with my studies comp completed, et cetera, I didn't know what to do again. And I said, like, how can I get back to that? And the only reason that I found, the only way that I found is because I managed to get a job in a Spanish NGO. Through that Spanish NGO, staying there, et cetera, I realized I'm not interested in, the hu in humanitarian work, not because I don't like it or anything. I, th I think because... I was re I really enjoyed my OSCE experience, more like administrative, political job. So I would like to get back to that. So knowing that, I ran accidentally into a guy that was in the OSCE with me uh, in Bosnia. And he told me, what are you doing? No, I'm working on NGO. Listen, are you interested in coming back to the OSCE? I said, yes. So I said, please go to Pristina and talk with the chief of the electoral operation that is used is your old boss in Brechko. So that I did that. I, I went to Pristina. I, I met him. He, hey, what are you doing here? No, I'm working here. So do you want to come and work? There is a post for you. And I went to the OSCE again. And I was in Kosovo. And then another, because I, I, I just to follow up, the, what, how do you end up in the UN in Africa, etc. From Kosovo, there was a time that I said to myself, because I, when I, I stayed in Kosovo for a year, and, you know, it was interesting, I liked it, it's okay, but, you know, I was so anxious to, to, to go to Africa, these African conflicts, and seeing other parts of the world, etc. In, in 2001, I think it was, yeah, 2001, the electoral process concluded, and there was a Norwegian head of the OSC and told me, listen, Marcos, do you want to stay? I can make you a political officer if you want to. 
or I can give, there is this post that you could apply, right? In X place, I don't remember. Uh, think about it and let me know. And that's the moment I said, you know, Bosnia, I mean, Bosnia, Kosovo, I think I had enough. It's an interesting, it's an interesting conflict, etc. But I would like to see other places. You know, I hear about people going to Congo, going to Rwanda, going to these places. That, you know, for one year, at the time, one year for me was like I have the experience of a lifetime. But one year, I was anxious to to see other options. And then I and then I decided, okay, let me go. So I left. Uh, Kosovo, just like that, afraid. I didn't know the future was very blurry. I left, I went back to Spain, and you know, two, three months later, I found a job in Congo, in the UN. And how was that process? I mean, when when you were at a time of, you know, not everything was as digital as it is, is now, and, you know, you sort of, as you mentioned, you have to have your networks, you have to talk to people, stay in contact with people, relationships are important. How did you get to a point of where you were finding these positions in the United Nations now? As you said, in those days, as strange as this might seem, we used to fill the applications with pen. Uh, we used to send them by fax, even though there was email. Okay, there was email, etc. But they was not as developed as it is today. So the UN applications, probably the one that I sent to Congo was filled on pen. You fax it to the UN office, and based on that, they will recruit you. Obviously, at the time, was not so much competition as there is today. First of sure. all, everybody, everybody were at a much embryonary stage. You know, like there were many, there were many young people. They were they were young people, but there were not so many. They, at the time, in 2002, when I went to Congo for the first time, the mission was really growing. They were hiring many people. So it was just a matter of knocking at the right door and they will eventually get you. Not like that. No, it's not, it's not that easy. There was interviews and so forth. Sure. But, but things were not, they were much, they were much simpler. And also, even with a little experience, okay, it's fine. No, there was not so much scrutiny and competitive exam, mm-hmm. competitive ex- interviews. It was, you know, Congo was a huge place. And they suddenly, in 2002, is when the Security Council expanded the mandate. They decided to open offices in most of the country. It was a huge country. Don't forget 2002, also Sierra Leone was opening a huge mission. Liberia was opening a huge mission. So if you were knocking at the right door and you had a bit of experience, they, could, they would get you. There is the issue, especially for young people, and I would like to point out, and the, the key element in all of this is languages. Because me, for example, if I had not had the chance to learn languages before all this happened, I could have never got, not even applied to the OSCE, not even applied to go to Sweden. I could never have dreamed to go to Congo if I would have known, not known French. Mm-hmm. So language is the base, obviously. You know, at the, back now, everybody speaks two, three languages. But back in the day, even though it does, it's not like Middle Ages, you know, the language, some people really were hesitating to go, Congo, French, so it's complicated, I cannot go. But how would you view, I mean, if we kind of fast forward a bit, I mean, how would you view 
the competition back then versus sort of the competitive environment today? It has completely changed for two reasons. Number one, there are many people with languages, highly qualified. There are at least two generations, I mean, at least people that are 10, 20 years younger than me, that they are much prepared. They have studied the conflicts that I've been. They know them by heart. Uh, they know the mechanisms. They know how the UN works, etc. So there is, before there were 10, now there are 1 million. And the second important thing that I would like to make, make clear that the, especially the UN, the UN, because it's this large, huge administration that has been going on for so long, it has become very nepotistic. Nepotistic in the, in the good and in the bad sense, not only bad. There are many people that they've been able to be in the system by friends, etc., and they promote friends, etc. So in that sense, the system is blocked. And other people that they, they only feel that they want to work with the right people and they keep working with the same people, not allowing new people to come, allowing less people to come in. Right. I think that's one of the challenges with people that want to start an international career and they're looking at organizations like the United Nations and everything else. And so they're facing this super competitive environment. And they're also facing these sort of bureaucratic challenges that you're talking about. And, and then we get this, as well as all the internal dynamics and struggles with the international organizations. And then we get, you know, to a point of where people get particularly frustrated because they apply and apply and apply and they send 100 applications and never hear anything. And, and one of the things that I encourage people to do is to really go through and, and, and map out all the different actors in the international community space. Like it doesn't always have to be the United Nations. And often when people pick the United Nations, they're picking sometimes the most super competitive positions to go after, you know, and you can find, you know, just like you did, you could start with an NGO. You could start with other organizations that are more international now these days than before, ever more than in the past, or, you know, even OSCE or, you know, other, you know, EU and other organizations. And so there's there's other ways yeah, yeah. around that. I encourage people to be a bit more creative because like you said, it's it's super competitive now. It is bureaucratic. It's slow moving. And it's it's just, um, you know, I think the visibility, there's a lot more visibility with the United Nations now. So mo more people are aware of the positions and the potential. Yeah. So the, this, all these things that you said, also all the administrations in the world, even the army, everything is more or less, they follow the same pattern. You have people at the beginning, they are enthusiastic. And as they grow, they become comfortable in the comfortable in the position, and they are just basically waiting for the end of the month to get their salaries and their retirement. That you cannot change. That's that's something unavoidable. And nepotism and corruption and so forth. That's something you cannot change. That's the way it is. But there are uh, ways to enter the UN through different programs. Uh, there are some uh, agencies that are quite fluid, and they are always willing to take young people. Maybe it takes time. That's something you, there's nothing you can do against because the funding, because the budget, this, this, as you know, the world economy and so forth, the UN doesn't have the resources and the money that they used to have before and the posts. So that's exactly, I 100% agree with what you said. It's like, okay, there are, and, but in the other hand, you have many NGOs. Okay, if you, uh, not you're not going to find an NGO, uh, a job necessarily as a political officer. 
Maybe no, but they're increasing NGOs that they need people that they need that they have people that they they are doing conflict analysis, they are doing medical analysis, they are doing all kinds of analysis. They are always ready to give opportunities to young people that are enthusiastic, that are curious, that are adventurous, that want to go to places that 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 going to allow these people to understand the conflict or to understand a specific country or to understand a specific dynamic. So, and there are, these things are growing. Also, never underestimate local structures. Local structures are one of the best ways to learn about a conflict, about how all this works, etc. That maybe you don't, maybe the salaries are minimum, etc. but that's going to give you an access to the people, a way to understand how to treat local people, what, are, what is the real the dynamic, etc. And there are many programs that they fund local institutions and they're always hiring youngsters, young, young university students or young post-university or people who have just finished studies. These things are growing every day more. Because, for example, here in Bamako, I always run into these young people that they are working attached to some local institution or to some local civil society organization or to some local initiative. They are there trying to survive. And they, this kind of people really, they, even after six, one year of all, all, this ex, all, all this experience, you realize you don't want to do, you don't want to be in the UN. You want to do something else in the international world of different nature. You want to create your own institution. You, you know, you have access to funding or you want to work with some kind of youth association and you are going to get money for them. You're going to do resource mobilization for them. This type of things, I think it's like, I would really would like to make emphasis on the fact that if you don't get a job in the UN, don't get desperated. It's not the end of your international career. There are many options and they are growing every day. There is. That, yeah, not, definitely. Yeah. And, I, and I think one of the keys here and, and what you've hit on is the fact that we have to be creative in our approach, right? And so, as you mentioned, there's so many more opportunities. It's a growing space. It's a growing field. It, we just have to be creative in the way that we look at this because we may, may not be working exactly in the career position that we want if you're looking at, say, you know, policy analysis or something, political policy analysis. But you might not be working directly in that position, but you could still be working on your career by going out and gaining experience with other organizations. It may not be directly what you wanted to be in that you were dreaming of once you left the university. But at the same time, at least you're gaining that experience of being in an international position somewhere, right? And so you're building out your portfolio, you're, you're taking on new tasks, new projects, networking, talking to people, and coming up with these creative solutions to continue to build your career and eventually land where you want to be. And, and I agree 100% with what you're saying, which is like, you may find out just by experience that you actually change your mind, <laughs> right? It happens. Yeah, I know the thing is that the, me, uh, I always say, I mean, the U, I mean, I've been most of my career in the UN, it's been good, etc. But I would not have liked to be young now and being in the UN now because I've seen so many youngsters, young people in, in the program that I'm working on that they left so discouraged, so upset, so disillusioned by what right. the UN has become. Because the UN, you know, you know this probably, Kyle, very good. The UN has become extremely bureaucratic, really slow, 
very political in the bad sense that is just discussions over discussions and discussions. So really for someone young who is re, uh, willing to interact with local people, trying to understand the dynamics, it's um, it's extremely frustrating. No? And I've seen, I'm not exaggerating, in a period of six months to a year, at least three, four, uh, highly competent, highly qualified, smart young people that they've left disillusion, but what 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 they have seen? Of course, don't don't underestimate the situation in Mali. It's not very encouraging. The situation keeps getting worse, but it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, even if you're in a place that is not developing as it should be, if you are in an institution where you where you have good colleagues, when you are doing interesting job, not necessarily useful, but interesting and learning, and you have uh, good supervisors that they push you, then you you do diff- you do you do interesting stuff. That's good enough. The problem is that in the UN is difficult to find these days, and especially because the UN keeps, especially these days, is just in countries that they are like falling apart. Also, we are in a in a in a moment in history that. Many countries where the UN is involved, they are basically falling apart. And right. The pieces are difficult to put together. And then the UN at the same time is very abstract with all these theoretical ideas, not, not able to adapt to a very changing environment. That with the bureaucratic that is becoming because the problem with the UN is increasingly becoming bureaucratic. And that's that's one of the things that kills young people's attitudes and everybody's attitude, actually. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the more bureaucratic and the more um, sort of stagnant the organization is, the the less creative it is. And, the you know, the more that energetic young people come into the organization, the more frustrated that they get. I think that's not just a UN problem. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's large. It's in many, many large bureaucratic organizations. Uh, and I've seen that in, in many different organizations as well. But you mentioned, uh, you know, previously when you were talking sort of about you know, the hiring processes and transitions and things like that. And and I wanted to ask you, so how many countries have and projects have you been in now? And how have you, or what is your view towards managing your own sort of transitions through different positions and things like that? Are you continually sort of looking at positions? Are you yeah, always yeah, yeah. talking yeah. to people? And how are you managing your actual international career? The thing is that, as you probably know, as you grow older, your personal situation changes. So of you course, have yeah. maybe, maybe family, etc. So you are a bit more dependent on these details. So you have to adapt sort of sort of that career to your situation. I was, I have to admit, I'm like one of these fa- one famous actor that said, listen, I, I, I it's not that I was a millionaire. I could never allow myself to say no to something. So I, I've been kind of like that. Huh? It's not that, even though you've seen from my profile many countries, but it was not. So when I um, when I left Congo, you know, I saw that the Congo was my Congo time was coming to an end because the team that was there left. So I said, okay, where can I found? And it's like, okay, at the time Sudan was Sudan was happening. So and then when I end up in Sudan after Sudan, okay, let's now Afghanistan is happening. It's not that. I could, okay, now I'm here, I'm tired of this place, I will. I want to go to Afghanistan. No, it was more, okay, does Afghanistan need people? Okay, I go. Uh, would, would they t- but you have to, But and this is a constant dynamic in the UN world. Your career is never s- settled for life in the sense that 
uh, I'm here now in the Sahel, based in Mali, but in the Sahel. If I want to leave from here, nobody's going to come to me and say, hey, Marcos, can you, do you want to come here? No. I have to like identify what is interesting, what is our, what can be arranged according to my, my situation with my kid, my family, etc. And is there a post? And if there a post, can I apply? And we, will they eventually select me to go? And this is, this is now becoming increasingly complicated because there are much less posts. As you grow in career, the positions are, are less. And now with the new policies of the UN, gender equality, etc., it's not as easy and flexible as it used to be before. So to answer your question, I don't know now from the top of my head how many places I've been, but many like this, sort of the conflicts in the 2000, 2001, 2003, since 2000, with all these conflicts, Haiti, Afghanistan, Sudan, Sierra Leone, and so forth. But also me, I always, and I always knew that what I wanted, it was conflict. Uh, I was not. I was not really so interested in development countries or in other aspects. I always was interested in conflict countries, countries at war, countries. This is what I always liked and wanted, and that was my tendency. So I, I, I tried a few times to apply for a job at the headquarters, etc. But soon I understood that it was difficult for me to first to get a job at the headquarters, and second, I didn't, I didn't know if it was going to be useful to me. But I think I would not worry too much about this. I think the most important thing is to get out, uh, try to find a job in the international arena, no matter what, either in an NGO, a local structure, whatever, and UN, OSCE, any also national development agency. And then once you are there, you will see what you like. You will see what your interest what your interest would be. And then, according to that, you go, you craft you craft your own career. You only know what you like, or you only know what you're interested in once you you see what's out there, and you only see what's out there once you are there. It's very difficult that somebody can tell do this, do that, do that. Not really. You you know yourself what you are interested in once you are in. Right. Absolutely. And I think what I try to tell people is the fact that, you know, just like you said, first, the most important thing is to get started uh, and to be able to get your foot in the door to at least start building that professional profile. Then once you evolve and you get into the international organizations and then you're able to start seeing what it's like from the inside, then, like you said, you can determine where you, what you like, where you want to go. Maybe you want to change your mind. Maybe you want to go in a different direction. But the really important piece is that you have to take ownership of your own career path. Uh, exactly. Because, like you said, nobody's going to ask you to go anywhere, <laughs> you know, and you don't want to be stuck generally in the same position for 15 years, you know, um, and you want diversity of experience. You want these types of things as well. So in order to do that, we have to be very good. And I think you and I have done it just sort of what I might call organically. We've been placed in these positions. We've had to assume responsibility of our own career. We learned that sort of through trial by fire, you know, but here I think that, you know, the, the message to pass down to people in the next generation of people that want to work internationally is that 
you can start from a position of ownership. You can start from a position of you know, acknowledging right up front, okay, I'll try this for three years, but then I need to start thinking about something else, for example. Yeah, no, I, co- I completely agree. It's, it's, but I think it's with that in life. Of course, in the UN, having uh, been this huge macro uh, bureaucratic structure, there are people, there are many people, especially those who work more in the support parts. That's okay, I'm in the UN, this is it, I'm done. But I don't think that's the case of the type of students that you are look that you are trying to to reach out to. I think uh, people who do international studies is because they have a curiosity, they want to go to different places, have different experiences, and craft their career. And you only can craft their career starting uh, somewhere, right. no matter no, no matter where. It depends also. It depends on the country you come from, because if you come from you know, Switzerland, they have these huge uh, national programs helping different countries, helping budget, helping da da da. da. Then there is a wide variety of Scandinavians, French, French, they have this huge uh, Institut Francais that they are all over Africa, that they are, they are involved in many activities, including culture. Maybe there, I'm sure there is people that they will be interested in co- uh, cultural cooperation, which is also an ex- extremely interesting job, dealing with young artists, from different places, from conflict countries, exchanging cultures, etc. There are other people who will be more into finance, up, up, uh, supporting countries to support their budgets, etc. So some of the things that the EU does. Uh, so and th- and that would have their own ways of entries. In my particular case, uh, since I was studying law, I always thought I don't know why. Today, to this day, I don't even know why. I always thought, I think the job for me is like a human rights officer. And that's what, and that's, that's because I thought that would sort of like could, could link my studies with the UN world. Because I, at the beginning, I was really afraid. Because I mean, at the beginning in Congo, I was more, I was more, in, in, at the beginning, I was more like a political, electoral. And I was, I had these nightmares at night thinking like somebody someday is going to discover me. And take my mask away and realize I don't even have a, a, a bachelor in political science or in international relations. So that's what I, I was afraid. I said, I have to get into this like more law related, jobs related, which it didn't make any sense. This day, I mean, there are, you see people in human rights with not necessarily a legal background. And you see, I mean, with jobs, legal jobs, you have people who do not have necessarily law degrees. It's how you make your career. It's about your curiosity, your interest, and especially it's always moving. You always have to move. It's like, I'm sure it's like playing guitar. I mean, nobody really knows his style until they play, they play, they play, they play. So this this happens the same. Nobody really knows what you want to do until you uh, until you start doing stuff. It doesn't matter where you start, from where you start or what you do. It's just a matter of like by doing that, it will give you. You will talk to different people. You will have access. You will have ideas. You have, you will have. You will have. You will have, and that will allow you to say, okay, what I like is be a resource mobilization officer for UNICEF for whatever reason. I think you know the pe- people in the people in the, in in capitals in Africa. They need guidance and there is good ideas, but they don't have access to the international funding mechanisms. Okay, I can help them doing that. Okay, that's I want to do that for UNICEF. But it's only trying to 
doing that type is when what you find what you like or what you find what you can be good at or what you can be useful. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's you have to try these things to figure it out because I mean, most people wouldn't even understand what a resource mobilization officer would be doing with UNICEF, right? Because this information is not entirely transparent and meant the language is different across different international organizations. So you have to really dig into the, to the, to the organizations and the missions and the frameworks and the mandates and everything to try and discover what's happening. But, you know, we could we could talk for a couple of hours about that. But I wanted to, because we're getting close to our time here, I wanted to sort of follow up just with one question about sort of your journey and your travels, you know, into an international career. You know, if you were looking back across this now, when you're, you were going to do one thing differently in your approach towards an international career, when you were first getting started, what would that be? You know, I, w- I would have prolonged my studies a little bit. Because I think I could have enjoyed a bit more of theoretical academia background for a bit more, especially having an experience, you know, in a in one of these universities that they are advanced in in international relations, international law, and so forth. Having done that, having I, could, I would have liked to do that, not necessarily at the beginning of my career or at the, at the end of my studies, but more, you know, maybe like five, six, seven years ago, I would have liked to go back and time to reflect on all of this, not so much working after working after experience after experience. Among many other ideas, now that I'm talking, you're giving me, I'm thinking about other things, you know, but I think that's <laughs> sure. the Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting point. I, you know, once you gain some significant experience, it, it, it can be a good exercise, you know, good mental exercise and a break to go back and reflect and then go back into academia and, and see what's changed or see what has developed and evolved over time. And and that's that's really not a, a bad idea at all. I think that's how we can sort of push ourselves to learn a bit more because you have so much field experience, you know, and then you go back to an academic environment and they're talking sort of in theory about how things should function and merging those two things together is where you can become very powerful. And I think an expert in your field. So, well, Marcos, thanks a lot for your time today. I think that was really insightful and really interesting discussion to, to, to have with you today. And I really do appreciate you sharing your own personal journey and, and travels towards your international career today with the, the people in it that are going to be listening to the podcast. And uh, I really wish you the best of luck in your career with the UN. And of course, I hope we, we stay in touch. And definitely. Um, yeah, definitely. And, you know, best of luck to you. And, and thanks a lot. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Also, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I hope this has been useful to someone.